Hey everybody, this is Elliot here with the Poor Pros Almanac. You're in my world today. So get ready to be deeply confused and hiding that confusion behind a thick, suave layer of inebriation and loud exclamations. Love it. Yeah, today we are going to discuss a brief history of American Prohibition. It was not, as the kids say, pro-hip. Damn it, Andy. This is why I'm in charge. You just love my jokes. Don't lie. I can't like, You can pretend under all that, that smooth caramel voice that you hate it, but we know. We all know. I can't stand it. You know I can't. <laughs> I've been complaining. It started with me complaining that you were a lefty, which I know. It's not your fault. I just thought it was weird. I'm over it now. This is like, we're, ta- we're talking about third grade right now. So yeah, I think it was. You've hated me a long time. It was always the layup. You got me on the layup. I hated it. Yeah, this is very relevant to collapse layups. Let's let's go back. Now, I know this has been talked about before, prohibition. It's probably been talked about extensively and diagnosed and broken down on the History Channel many times, but in the theme of this podcast, I wanted to attempt to bring a few key things to mind about why prohibition happened and the way any group of people or society or country governs themselves. It's not going to be anything crazy. I just thought it would be fun. So that's why we're doing it. Yeah. And I'm going to have like an obligatory drink for prohibition. So just ignore me today, which is what Elliot usually does anyway. It's true. And after all of this, I I usually have a puppers. A puppers? Yep. You know, like a bull pup. (laughs) You don't watch the show Letterkenny. Love that show. Those guys are great. I've watched some of it. I watched like the first season. But then I got distracted and forgot to keep watching it. It was good. I don't remember that, though. It happens. We've digressed again, and we're not even three minutes into this episode. So, I found all this interesting. What were we talking about? Prohibition? All right, now we're three minutes in. Okay. I found all this interesting because prohibition was a political issue and a social issue. Like, two things at once. But there are some underlying themes that don't get talked about much, so... That's why I started digging a little bit, trying to see what I could come up with. And I started at the temperance movement. All this started in, what is it, 1808 in Saratoga, New York, and 1813 in Massachusetts. Yeah, so as a Luddite like myself who doesn't know anything about temperance, what is the temperance movement? So the temperance movement began, as I said, in the early 1800s as a movement to limit drinking in the United States. Boo. Right? I know. So the movement combined a concern for general social ills with religious sentiment and practical health considerations in a way that was appealing to many middle class reformers. So I think we should have less health considerations and more social ills. Just throwing that out there. I mean, just start, start, a, start a new city. Okay. But, the Prole City. And then, and then just wait. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, so middle-class reformers, women in particular, were drawn to temperance in large numbers. Temperance reformers blamed demon rum for corrupting American culture and leading to violence, immorality, and mostly death. A lot of death. So, is there actually, like, demon rum? Because I want it. I mean... Tell me there's demon rum. I need the demon rum, Elliot. I think it was an allegory for people getting drunk and it was like a demon was in them. Because it was a drink. The, is, it, is this like the spirits? Yes. Like, this, exactly. You got it. That's less fun. But all right, continue. See, it's literally your kind of joke. It's a stupid, punny joke. And when it's other people, you don't like it. So now you know how I feel. Yeah, but that's a metaphor. 
I never do metaphors. It's because you lack the wit, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Oh, wow. This is getting violent. I mean, we're only five minutes in and now, is that like the new thing is we get three minutes in saying nothing, we get two more minutes in and then you just abuse me verbally? The, the gloves are off, buddy. Oh. This is my episode. I told you you're in my world today. <laughs> I don't know if I like it. Well, I changed out the word aggression for inebriation early in the intro, so maybe I should change it back. <sighs> Do your thing, buddy. Thank you. So by the 1830s, there were roughly 6,000 temperance societies in quite a few states. At the same time, temperance is picking up across the Atlantic in many places like Ireland and spreading in Great Britain. See, I can't laugh. I can't read that and la- not laugh. That's funny to me. Because fuck Great Britain and Ireland was like, if we're going to be fucked, you are too? Yeah, that's why it's funny. Because, it, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm sorry, everyone. No, it's beautiful. So temperance is picking up in Ireland, Great Britain, as well as Norway and Sweden. It looks like the first temperance group to break into international organization was a group out of Utica, New York, the Order of Good Templars, in 1851. They, over time, would eventually have organized in the U.S., Canada, and a few countries in South America, as well as Great Britain, Scandinavia, and a few other European countries, as well as Australia, India, and other parts of Africa. They got your people. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of missionary work. It's a lot of missionary work, and not the kind... Nope, not going to say that. Um, Think of the children, (laughs) Andy. Yeah, there's children listening, maybe. Please don't be. Honestly, though, that does sound like a super secret cult society, like the Order of the Good Templars. Like you have to go into some like abandoned warehouse that's actually like an archaeological site. I'm just picturing you can't join a group like that without like drawing blood with a sword and like taking an oath or something. Yeah, you got to get that Kool-Aid. Drink that demon rum Kool-Aid. I don't think they drank the Kool-Aid, though. They didn't drink it. Yeah, that was the problem. Because it's not it's about not drinking. Oh, yeah. No, that's from Macho Man Randy Savage. Yeah, it is. What does the Kool-Aid man say? Oh, yeah. It was a deep voice, like a bassy voice. Oh, yeah. Like, like just that? picture how you would picture, like, Shaq entering a room. <laughs> We're back to... Measure. Don't we have enough episodes where we talk about Shaq? I, I literally just, yeah. <laughs> I had a brain <laughs> I had a brain fart and I brought Shaq back into it. Let's measure this uh, episode in Shaq's. We're going to measure Not how again. quickly you assault me verbally in shacks. Dom, cut this out, please. It's terrible. Don't. That's why I keep Elliot for is to let him badger me with shack jokes. So anyways, tell me about these prohibitions, these anti-alcohols people. So state prohibition laws, after being repealed, had been enacted in many cases through efforts of prohibition during this time. But in the end, were again repealed. So basically, they were like the pro-life movement in the 90s. Like, we're going to take these rights away, but no, not really. But we're going to try again, and we're going to fail again. And then maybe win a couple times, but then fail again. Unfortunately, yes, it's very similar to that. Yeah, it's it's kind of like that. Cool. It's not cool. This happens all the time. Yeah, well, I wonder if these are the same kinds of people. I wonder if we'll find that out today, Elliot. We'll get there. We'll get there. So... <laughs> We're starting at some people's favorite part, the Civil War. Also, <laughs> everyone loves the Civil War, Elliot. Come on. I mean, I do. I just would love to win it again and again and again and again and again. There's a bunch of cities that need some burning. You you just want to head west this time instead of east? Okay. 
Sorry, that's my evil person laugh. Um, the Civil War also. Also. Okay, so now we're in the mid-1850s-ish era, and the Civil War just further convoluted things and made things even more confusing when you throw all of this moral and political turmoil and mix up open war within your borders. That That always makes things better. I mean, John Brown made things better, so... Yeah, he started it. <laughs> so, to fast forward, in 1869, a state prohibition party was formed in Ohio, and a full state ticket was placed in the field. And in September 1869, the National Prohibition Party was formed, called the Good Templars. There's that name again. Just cat gods. That's all I can picture. Cat? Cat gods. Like Anubis? <laughs> Anu- that was a jackal? Yeah. Anubis is a jackal. Is that like a cat it's like a cat dog right yeah, maybe i don't know I, I just vision like really bad 80s like stupid like kind of racist like horrors carry on ignore me it's i'm drinking for prohibition elliot leave me alone <laughs> I, I am gonna go back to ignoring you it's better so anyway the good templars this party put its national ticket in the field in the presidential election of 1872 The party throughout its existence never received more than about 3% of the total vote in any election, even when prohibition was enacted, but existed as a way to link many similar values. Okay, so similar values infers, hear me out, that there's a list of values, right? Because there's more than one singular value. So please, like, tell me there's a list. A list of values? Yes. I want to know what these values are. Like like a menu? Do you think they pick from it like a menu and they just... No, like uh, the Democratic Party has like a platform. Like they must have had like, okay, we're not just literally, we exist as prohibition only. Like they have opinions on other shit and I want to know what that is. Okay, so first off, it still exists. Was there like a candidate in 2020? Oh, there was. Can you want to know what his name was? I do. It was Phil Collins. Oh, shut the fuck Not, Not that film. Nope, not that not film. Not that Phil Collins? Nope. So he won't be in my heart? I, I mean, he wasn't before I told you, and th- does he feel like he's in there now? <sighs> that was a Tarzan joke. If, if there's on. anything in your heart, Andy, get it out. <laughs> or keep it in. My if heart has been buried for a long time. Or, or keep it in there if it's in like the aorta or something like that. You gotta. Then we got to get it surgery. Never mind. I don't know if our audience is old enough to get the Tarzan joke and like Phil Collins Maybe. and stuff. Phil, big Phil, like Phil Dunphy Collins. You're no. so, you're, st- why are we even doing this? I don't know. The The party doesn't have, <laughs> the party doesn't have many overlaps with where it was other than, you know, prohibition. Like today? Yes. It was in some ways a fairly progressive party at the time, I guess. So it's like, I don't know, a progressive libertarian party so like the good parts of libertarians with more empathy or more investments in schools but also balanced budget amendments and optional prayer in school a gold standard for currency but also anti-pornography honestly i trust a prohibitionist less if they supported pornography that's like a really unwell person who's like i'm cool with porn but not alcohol like, I want to see if a fist can fit up that person over there's butt, but... Think of the children. Yeah, think of the children. They can't peer around a Bud Light. What do you watch on the internet, man? Just curious. <laughs> I think I need a drink. 
Yes, you do. That's the whole point here. So this all gets weirder. Today, they're anti-assisted suicide, but also free college for all. Yeah, that sounds like you're just like making this up. I'm not that creative. I do wish I was. This is where all, all my research took me, by the way. Yeah, so this is like really fascinating in a way that I need to like almost pretend it's fake because it's like obvious insanity. They're just basically like taking random opinions and just being like, shit, I wonder what would happen if I just fucking smashed them together. Yeah, you got to say it louder and with more aggression like I was originally going to say at the beginning of the episode. You got you to gotta hide that fear. So anyway, the point is that it's a weird political position. So unsurprisingly, they've never gained a ton of traction. That doesn't mean there was organizing outside of the political arena. If you ever paid attention to any part of history class, Andy, I'm looking at you. First off, I was a great student in history, like relatively speaking to my other classes. Right, right. Did you know I was going to be a history teacher at first? Yeah, I remember you telling me that once. Really worked out well for me. I mean, you climbed right over that into something way, I don't know. Did you imagine? Podcasting. (laughs) Yep. Which is like teaching your version of history. This is is our version of history. Very subjective. Yes, this is our. Perspectives on history. Our version of history. We will rewrite it. In Elliot's name. In Elliot's face. Yeah, the book of Elliot. (laughs) Super boring. And I'm just going to be me begetting myself. (laughs) Weed everywhere. Just burn holes in all the pages. Bible pages. Dicks carved into the cover. The back blank pages and Bibles do make pretty decent joy papers if you don't have any. I've I've learned that from traveling. A lot of hotels, they always have Bibles in the drawers. It's great. Gideon's Bible. Who? Gideon's Bible. You don't know about Gideon's Bible? Oh, you're going to learn a thing today. So Gideon's Bible, it, we're not, you know what? We're not going down this road. We'll no. talk about this later. Hold, hold we'll talk that. about this offline. Off hold that thought, Andy. Yeah. Where the hell did I leave off? So tell me about these women of the temperance movement, my friend. Okay, so you know that women led the charge in temperance because no one likes to clean up after or take care of a drunk, and I don't care how funny the TikToks are. The embodiment of this sentiment, a lady by the name of Carrie Nation, took to wholesale destruction of private property because she hated booze so much. So is this based in something else? Like, you know, I'm thinking about like the the long history of like Puritanism in the United States or like thinking this is the late 1800s, like basically uh, that Puritanism and a hatred for like lavish, indulgent Victorian aesthetic being like this is all fucked and that's why everything sucks today because there's a long history in the United States of thinking everything sucks today unlike before. I mean, probably, maybe. I I don't... See, the answer right there is yes and no, because then you're never wrong. Come on, Elliot. Didn't you learn anything I'm just from gonna me? S- I'm just going to say probably, because I want to say it in one word, not three, Andy. I don't want to be like you. You're, you economize. <laughs> okay. Yes. Fair. If, if you be anything, you be efficient. <laughs> so, around 1900, this lady had a divine dream where God told her... Uh, stuff (laughs) yeah i don't don't know what he said i don't know what he said i don't know what he said word for word Um, no one was there she had a dream from god and 
basically she ran around with hatchets and hammers and smashed up bottles and entire saloons and pharmacies that were using alcohol as remedies all over Kansas. Uh, she got arrested like 30 times for what she called hatchetations, and I presume she intended to carry the nation into sobriety with fits of uncontrollable rage. You know, I wish I had something better for that. You know, she wanted to be like the John Brown for alcohol and like, I don't know, John Drown. You're going to you're going to go into the, the pun jokes. John frowned or hear me out. John downed like down to drink. Glug no, glug. No, it's just let's cut Dom cut this out. No, Carrie Nation. So she would go around to pharmacies and saloons. And she didn't like people frequenting the establishments, so she literally took hatchets and would chop up stools and chairs. So eventually she started going after the bar itself, just chop chopping up the bar because she didn't want people gathering and drinking. Because people kept just standing there and they're like, oh, I guess I don't have a chair now. People were sitting on rubble and just like, hey, is this a, can, can you pour a shot on this and let me drink it? She was like, no, <laughs> you can't. And she- I like that your voice for her is also the same voice as when you're pretending to be your mom. Same, it's the same thing. She was always yelling at me not to drink. <laughs> Having flashbacks. Yeah. So she, oh, I just think it's so funny. Anyway, reading up on all this, I couldn't help but laugh seeing a tiny angry lady wielding a hatchet in a bar. And my first thought was, damn, this lady needs a drink. And how I probably would have gotten axed in the chest. <laughs> I mean, again, the way you're describing her and your reaction is basically your childhood and if your mother had an, a hatchet like in her hand, I could, I could see that. It was, it was a, a wooden spoon most oftentimes. Yeah, a little slightly less damaging. You would think so. I said slightly. Like, you're, you're alive. Or this is some really weird fabrication of my memory. I don't know. I, I bear these scars, Andy. <laughs> so, sounds crazy and fun. And I would, in all honesty, drink my whiskey and watch her destroy other people's stuff. Because if I was in my cups, it would probably be funny to me. She was the, <laughs> you want to talk about it? She was the first jackass participant. Fact. <laughs> yeah. This is the America that I know and love because they couldn't have just chalked it up to violence from video games or social media. This lady didn't even have anything to drink to blame like her burst of uncontrollable berserker rage there, there's nothing to blame it on <laughs> mental health issues and our responses to them is to start what banning things from people and everyone and surprisingly she was using you know hammers and hatchets correctly so they didn't ban those i mean it's made for chopping wood and the bar is made of wood it's like that old uh happy gilmore she got sponsorships from the hatchets and she was just, I, I can't, I can't. You can't make this history up. She would be TikTok viral right now. She would have, would have been arrested 30 times? We, her handle would be like Barf of a Nation. Oh, that's like, terrible. Her last name is Nation. No. Curse of a Nation. I already threw it in there. I said carry the nation, but that was a play on words. Yeah, I'm going to go back to just drinking. I'm calling it direct action if anyone asks. I'm not going to lie. I think you're drunk and I should cut you off, but I'd like to see where this goes. It's really, I'm doing my service here for the greater good Gotta encu- of freedom. Encourage your friends' good habits. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, as the turn of the century approached, the temperance movement shifted into its final drive by applying more political pressure and urging state and federal governments to start legislation that would prohibit alcohol. 
as direct action led way to legal action, women who still didn't have the right to vote at the time became a silent majority in the movement. It'd be asinine to say prohibition would have happened when it did without the help of some pretty badass women who just wanted to make the world a better place by keeping people healthy and sober with the help of axes and hammers if need be. Boo. She carved the way for more direct work to be done by groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, founded in 1874, which went international by the 1880s, and by 1883 had come up with the World Women's Christian Temperance Union. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that these are predominantly white women. Yes, basically and unsurprisingly. Temperance eventually gets co-opted by white men, notably Wayne Wheeler, this tight-lipped looking nerdy guy, by my observation, but I guess by someone who looked into it a bit more than me and just looking at pictures of this dude just the one time, he was described as a shrew and ruthless political tactician. I just don't see it though. Classic white dude. You know, he was probably like only a hundred years too early for making angry videos in his pickup truck about kids these days. Right. He didn't have the truck, but he did know how to drive elections. You know, that's a pretty bad pun, even by like my standards. I mean, that does kind of that does kind of hurt coming from you. In 1893, Wayne and some dudes founded the Anti-Saloon League, a group that debuted during what is known as the Progressive Era known for other groups coming out at the same time that were surging reform in civil rights, labor, conservation, industry, and political corruption. Yeah, and it's kind of weird because historically, this is like actually a time of like incredibly progressive organizing happening. Most people don't realize that like in the late 19th century, discrimination was actually like illegal and many black people in the United States sued companies for discrimination and won. And cities like D.C. and even like Charleston, like white middle class neighbors would have black working class neighbors. And in many ways, is more integrated than it is today. It was only until really at the very tail end of the late 19th century and the early 20th century where things like separate but equal really became the norm. Places like even like Alabama had elected black figures into government during this time, which would be basically impossible with the rise of things like the KKK a few decades later. Yeah, and folks like Wayne worked to bring back traditional values. Yeah, one might say they wanted to make America great again, like his involvement in growing the KKK. I I think one might, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to think. Throwing it out there? I don't know how to think like a white guy. I'm trying. (laughs) Are you sure? I just want to succeed. (laughs) Uh, So Wayne and his little friends wanted to ban booze for everyone and used the anti-immigrant sentiment at the time to boost morale among rural white Americans that thought alcohol would weaken the moral fiber of the country. Couldn't have the Irish with whiskey and Germans making their homebrews and their beers and Italians with mommy's grape juice that were coming into the country at the time to do all the work. You know, they they took our jobs. Not your job. No, they didn't take my job. Hey folks, thanks for listening. This is Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Hopefully you're enjoying the podcast so far, and right now I'm talking to you from a commercial in a Poor Pearls Almanac podcast. I'm sure you're enjoying the show and maybe even enjoying some of our ridiculous ads. We are able to keep our episodes ad-free and keep the lights on here because of support from listeners like you. 
If you think we're adding valuable perspective to the subjects of agriculture, ecology, climate change, and politics, then please consider giving us some support on Venmo, Ko-Fi, Patreon, or PayPal, all of which can be found at our website, poorproles.com. Please, don't make me go to Jeff for money. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Bezos. Jeffrey, 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 Jeff, 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 Jeffrey, Jeffrey Bezos. Rural implants flocking into cities to work jobs resented the scores of saloons in their neighborhoods that enticed men with drink and undoubtedly led to other vices. Yeah, I think it's important to contextualize what was happening at this point. You know, we I brought up this fact that like there was intense change going on at this point. There had been this really meaningful progression for human rights, basically, in the late 19th century. And you also have this confluence of industrialization taking place, which really drove like lots of migration to urban centers, both from like the countryside and in the United States, as well as internationally. So this pendulum that had swung hard left during the late 1800s with things like the fusion of the Republican and populist parties, which at the time was necessary to break the power of the Democratic Party, which was basically rich old money. And by breaking that power of the Democrats led to this massive influx of black representation in government positions. These Democratic leaders, since they owned things like the news media, and of course, this is pre- internet, had been able to control the conversations around politics for so long. And they were able to then utilize that news media as a weapon. The only way that was broken was by things like rural organizing by like the Farmers Alliance, who worked to build solidarity across the rural working class. The major goals really for those Republicans and populists was to decentralize that local government power that was basically held by a handful of rich people. And to do this, they wanted to increase ballot access and oversight and increase funding for things like public schooling. Monsters of men. Basically, the Democratic Party quickly realized that they could break this by pitting rural white people against the black members of the government. And by doing this, pitting these uh, rural white working class people against black working class people, they're really quickly able to reclaim the power in the governments of the South in particular which framed up the beginning of the massive influx in organizations like the KKK due to the help of our buddy Wheeler. And again, this is something that the future Republicans, they basically stole this exact play out of Democratic playbook just about 50 years later. So what you're saying is prohibition is closely tied to racism in American history? In so many words, like most things, yeah. It wasn't simply a, hey, we care about you, come support us, and more of a propaganda war. They were putting cartoons in papers saying that, like, their black neighbors were basically rapists. And because the Democrats owned every form of media, uh, they were able to ramp up coverage of any violence by black people in communities and basically weaponize the industry. And this was pushed further as an anti-corruption platform by suggesting that politicians would buy immigrant support or black support by making backdoor deals with like these various groups in the saloons. I can't let that one go. You were going to say backdoor deals. Yeah, it just it sounds corrupt when you put it like that. It really does. (laughs) Not gonna I like lie. how your your like subtle southern accent is like leaking in as we go down this this rabbit hole. Well, I'm trying not to laugh because at the beginning of the last segment, I thought you were going to say yes and no, but there was no no. You just went into yes. There was yes. no no. There was no no. Yeah. No. 
it threw me off a little bit. I was expecting like a no, like a yes and no question, like answer, like you always do. Not this time, buddy. I God got damn. you. It hit, it hit hard. <laughs> this one's for you, buddy. Yeah, but I guess none of that really happens anymore though, right? Yeah, I mean, fortunately, the media is owned by like massive amounts of the population who have good critical thinking skills and uh, we definitely see right through any bias that came in our news media. So yeah, that's the backdrop for all of this. And since the political party system didn't work, the Anti-Saloon League was organized on the basis of basically let's co-opt parties by throwing 3% support behind individual candidates who support our one vested interest which is a big deal when most elections are won by a small margin. Yeah, this has like real big modern day Republican evangelical energy, if you ask me. And I know, um, I think it was, it could happen here, I think. Or maybe it was Behind the Bastards did an episode about this. But yeah, it's got that big, big Midwest energy. Right. So going back to the past, from 1895 to 1912, the record of Practically every year showed an increase in dry territory as the Anti-Saloon League, abundantly financed by church and private contributions, brought the influence of its following increasingly to bear upon local and state politicians. Yeah, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, which I've been doing all night, and I'm going to guess, here we go, can we predict which states were wet and dry based on like the 2020 election? The South, Midwest, and states like New Hampshire were all dry, while Massachusetts, New York, Illinois, California, and a few other states stayed wet. So shout out to Louisiana in particular for being the only state basically in the entire region for staying wet during this time. So like you could predict the 2020 election with almost like 90-95% accuracy just based on like which states banned alcohol 100 years ago. Yep. All those states who worry about government overreach. Weird, right? It's almost like they only want to limit certain types of government overreach. Almost. Now, obviously, when you've got states where it's legal and other states that it's not, transporting alcohol runs rampant. Yeah, I mean, it's shocking that people, like, do it anyway. Yeah, it opens up a black market and there's lots of money to be made. It's, it's not that hard. And sweet hot rods. Gave us NASCAR, baby. I'm wearing my NASCAR <laughs> shirt right now. Woo! In 1913, the League adopted the proposal for a National Prohibition Amendment. Its decision to work for a National Prohibition was due to the difficulty of dealing with the shipment of liquor from wet into dry states. And Yeehaw! Right? And to the continuous, <laughs> and to the continuous effort... Praise Dale. Gotta go fast with the lights off. It's fucking pretty badass. Um, so they couldn't get the liquor from the wet states into the dry states. And to the continuous effort in many of the dry states to repeal or modify their previous prohibition enactments. So the solution, obviously, is more government. It never backfires. Ever, ever, ever. Ever. So a major tipping point for the drive towards prohibition was the Great War itself, World War I. After America declared war on Germany in April of 1917, Wheeler, with the Anti-Saloon League, as well as... WCTU, the Women's Christians Temperance Union, and other church groups focused on pursuing a constitutional amendment that would ban most alcohol. At this point, over half of the country had state-designated dry laws. So using resentment for German-American beer makers disguised as patriotism, 
while backing all this up with protect the troops from the temptation of liquor and saloons with all of their vice and sin. So I, for one, am shocked, shocked that people would leverage international war for their own interests. I just, I, I can't believe it. I don't. I refuse. But of all things to ban booze. No, not in my America. You, you want to revise this part of history? America never <laughs> banned alcohol. We would never do that. I mean, I'm pretty sure they're trying to do that with uh, blocking critical race theory. <laughs> Let's we never we we never banned alcohol. We just we've we've always loved it. And we've never enslaved black people. Didn't happen. That happened, but you know they they they, they wanted they, it. They, they they did it first. Ah, <laughs> uh, God, our country is a disgrace. Carry on. <laughs> right. So. This all came to a head when they were actually able to push through wartime prohibition to ban alcohol during the war. With this political momentum, it wasn't long before a plan was proposed to Congress for an amendment to the Constitution of the entire country to ban alcohol, while they all began to lobby state legislators to approve the passage. They worked up a federal statute that made it feasible and legal to implement the 18th Amendment to ban the sales, distribution, and transportation of alcohol, no more than half a percent alcohol content, along with the federal agents to enforce all of this. Wheeler drafted the whole thing, and it was proposed by Minnesota Republican and Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Andrew Volstead, which is why this proposition is recognized as the Volstead Act today. No one remembers Wheeler's name. He did a shit job. Woodrow Wilson tried to veto all of this, but Congress overrode him, and they said, dry out, good sir, and America. Yeah, and I want to take a minute to talk about Wilson, because this really encapsulates an interesting and important piece of this conversation. I tried to say his name real fast, so you just gloss over it, and I knew you were going to do this, so... Yeah. Yeah, just go ahead. So, we had talked about this idea that the Democratic Party was, like, really shitty during this time period. Like, they were very happy with the idea of, like, can we go back to slavery? And in this process, they reinforced racist policies. And many times it was in defense of racial superiority. It wasn't like uh, we don't want to give up power. It's like the Bible and God himself says that we are superior. So, like, they were pretty bad, right? Yeah. So, how much has that really changed? Yeah, and that's a whole other topic. But maybe like someday when we become like a politics podcast, we can talk about that. No. Are you sure? No. Yes. No. Okay. I guess we won't. Uh, I got fucking vetoed. You just Wilsoned me. Fuck yeah, I did. I got Wilsoned. <laughs> Wilson. <laughs> Wilson. Listen, it sometimes sometimes it feels good to say no. Okay, so my point was though was that in the argument about prohibition. Wilson, an objectively terrible human being who basically took like Plessy versus Ferguson, which was separate but equal decision by the Supreme Court in 1896 and forced it into policy. It's not a black and white issue of good guys and bad guys, as we had pointed to earlier with the utility of a small portion of dedicated voters who could swing elections in their favor. If you're not familiar with why Plessy versus Ferguson is like super terrible, go check it out. Because in history classes, I remembered it when I was in high school. It was like, oh, look, we're making things better for poor black people. And that wasn't the point. But that's going on a tangent. I need to drink less. The point is here that Wilson was a Democrat whose father defended slavery on biblical grounds. And he came from a long line of shitty people. And despite that, he also saw that this was a terrible idea. So... 
I'm trying to trying to wrap my head around that. Who like his his dad defended slavery on biblical grounds? Okay, I get I get that. I get that might have something to do with his upbringing. But you think he vetoed all of this because he foresaw it was a terrible idea, not because he was just like I like drinking? Because <laughs> because I think you're thinking into it way too much. No, he knew. So like Wilson's an interesting guy. He's arguably the most educated person before Obama to have ever been president. Oh, actually, no, let me just say that again. He is the most educated person to have ever been president. And he had academic support in the fact that he was highly qualified, a highly intelligent person who is also a highly terrible person. But that doesn't negate the fact that he was smart. And that's really important. And we do a terrible job of recognizing people can be both terrible and smart. I think we're saying the same thing. He was smart enough to know that he liked drinking. <laughs> I mean, he, I'm I, sticking, he absolutely. I'm sticking to like, it. 100% he liked drinking. But that, like, okay, so let's talk about laws when you're rich. They don't exist. If I was president, that would be enough for me to veto anything. I mean, yeah, but like, also, like, let's be truly honest. It's not going to affect him. He doesn't get affected by laws. He's the fucking president. The reality is that, like, this is a problem because of the fact that he recognized there's a bunch of different impacts that this decision will make. And my point of bringing this up is that, like, things don't exist in black and white territory. We have a bad idea coming up to a bad president and they still don't see it eye to eye. We can be on one side even if we recognize they're a shitty person is where I'm going with this. I gotcha. Anyways, as I was saying... Basically, this came to this point where it had this much power because there was a small but dedicated voting block on a small scale. And they were basically able to be use that 3% in small communities to make it look like, okay, if you have 10 small towns with a very vocal 3% who are voting in swinging elections, suddenly a state can look like 80% supports this policy, even though it's a bunch of towns that only won by a few percent. Mm-hmm. And that snowballs. That's why they ended up with nearly two thirds of the Senate in the House supporting prohibition, despite it being like super unpopular throughout the country. By using it as a wedge issue that wasn't specifically tied to a party in any way. Let's say like how the Republicans have like latched onto the Second Amendment as like a wedge to get people who might otherwise vote like they might be kind of democratic they don't really agree with republicans on like social issues but they care a lot about guns so they'll vote with the gop every time even though they don't really stand that strongly with a lot of their platform that's what we see going on here and i think that's really insightful for uh the way our politics operate yeah that's a really good point for this episode (laughs) yeah Um, So I do want to talk a little bit about Wilson because I am a little bit of a history nerd and he's an interesting guy for a lot of reasons. But this is a really interesting time and I'm just going to keep using the word interesting until you shoot me. I can do that. In history in the United States because a lot's happening. So in 1913, we see the 16th Amendment come up which that had been in the works for years. He wasn't the one that like really wrote it or anything. But the idea was to reduce tariffs and to ultimately reduce the power of big business in the U.S. during this time because, like, with tariffs, that meant there was no international competition. And you are already starting to see what we're seeing today on a global scale where there are these massive monopolies taking over because they didn't have competition outside of themselves. 
And we see that today with like Amazon and Walmart taking over the world. But at this time, their response was, okay, if we reduce tariffs, we'll get outside competition. And that would reduce the power of big business. But reducing tariffs meant that they needed money to come from somewhere else. And at that time, the only things that brought in money were tariffs and tax stamps on alcohol. So following the money like all good truth seekers do, that was the window for prohibition to have a chance because alcohol was suddenly less important on a federal scale to the government for tax revenue. Yeah, basically. And I don't think I said this, but the 16th Amendment allowed for an income tax. So like having income tax on rich people is going to generate a lot of money. Don't don't ban the booze, though. Hi, I'm Liz here with Red and we're Listen Left. We're really appreciative of Poor Pearl's realistic take on ongoing collapse. They give a reasonable voice to a subject where reasonable voices are hard to find. Listening empowers us to build a world without capitalism, and that's why we've been supporting our comrades' Patreon for over a year now. For our project, Listen Left, we found that many leftist texts, from Marxist-Leninist to anarchists and beyond, are very hard to find as audiobooks, and certainly not for free. So we decided to make those audiobooks. Find us on Instagram, SoundCloud, or just listenleft.org for a ton of free accessible audiobooks. Bring it, big dog. Okay. On August 19th, 1917, the U.S. Senate voted 65 to 20 in favor of the proposed 18th Amendment. The House of Reps followed with 282 to 128 in favor on December 18th, 1917. A month later, the Mississippi legislature ratified the 18th Amendment. As America's death toll climbed towards 100,000 in the Great War, it was nearing the midterm election stateside on November 5th, 1918. The armistice was signed a few days later on November 11th, and with the war over, Prohibition and its cohorts rode the momentum provided by nativists' anti-immigrant sentiment. A few weeks later, on January 16th, 1919, the 18th Amendment became law after being ratified by 36 states. The nation's new law went into effect January 20th, 1920, and violators could be fined $1,000 or spend months behind bars. Here's where the infamous 13 years of rampant organized crime, as well as political and moral corruption, and the Roaring Twenties themselves began right here. And we definitely don't have the time or alcohol in the studio, trust me right now, to go into the complexity of that story. That said, I don't think this point can really be overstated. In the immortal words of the Wu-Tang Clan, cash rules everything around me. Cream! Get the money. And there were two sides to this. Part of the driving force on the prohibition side wasn't just that alcohol was a dangerous substance, but the producers and financiers of alcohol were creating a perpetual system of dependence, which was sickening society as a whole. And the solution was to make it impossible for the system to exist, which, I mean, I get. For sure. So switching gears a bit, this is tough to say. I don't currently have a grasp on politics at all. I find myself unable to follow arguments about a lot of things because people always reference things or events or quotes or deeds and misdeeds that I don't know anything about. And then I get- I never do that. And then I feel like I'm too uninformed to have an opinion. But alcohol, a substance that was and still is preferred more than water by a staggering amount of the population- you weren't going to laugh at that pun? The staggering yeah, amount of the population. Ha, you know? Ha, ha. I thought it was funny. Ha. Okay, I'm done. Sound like you're duck. <laughs> I try. Alcohol was able to unify the country into saying it was bad enough to be made illegal. 
All this moral drive to make drunk men behave better and go to work unified the country. But it, did, it didn't really. It was just a small percentage, like you said, of uh, people who were incredibly talented at leveraging a passionate minority into the illusion of a passionate majority. Yeah, and you know, again, something we keep saying is good thing that never happens now. Exactly. So now it's my turn to talk about our boy Woody Wilson. Give me that wood. I never say that to me again. I'll say that to you every day. I'm gonna call you every morning. You're you're just gonna get kneecapped to two by fours. <laughs> you think that's the first time I've been kneecapped by a two by four? By an angry black man, yes. You would have told me if it happened otherwise. <laughs> Maybe. I would have been the first person you told. Did you know him? Elliot, I got street cred. Did you know I him? Never believe I, it. I think I just got in a fight. <laughs> Ugh. So, Woodrow Wilson, he had just helped the Federal Reserve Act get through Congress in 1913, creating the Federal Reserve System in order to mobilize banking reserves and issue a flexible new currency, Federal Reserve notes, based on gold and commercial paper. The whole point was to stop runs on banks in times of uncertainty. And another feather in the cap was the passage of the Clayton Antitrust Act in 1914, which strengthened existing laws against anti-competitive business actions and gave labor unions relief from court injunctions. Accompanying this act was one creating the Federal Trade Commission intended to prevent unfair business practices. Again, he's an interesting guy in the sense that he was like an absolutely terrible shit human being who needed to be kneecapped by Elliot with a two by four, but also did some good things. And it's super important, I think, to keep in mind the way politics can be leveraged and that oftentimes the idea that we can only support people that we like align with completely is often like impossible and that some pragmatism is necessary. Basically. And I'm sorry... I wouldn't kneecap you with the two by four, Andy. Don't. Don't try to sweet talk me now. No, I would just, I, I, I forgot you're a tree guy and that you like wood. <laughs> I should just give it to you. Wow. I'm sorry. I'm shaking my head at you. You're not accepting my apology? <sighs> and that is my reparations, is I'm accepting your apology. Yeah, that it's was a white man's burden. <laughs> that wasn't so hard, was it? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel better now. I'm equal. Do I have to accept yours? I don't want to. <laughs> it's too late. You you have accepted it. <laughs> I'm going to go Nancy Pelosi and get my like fucking, what is it, dashiki that she was wearing? No, you have to wear fubu. Fuck you, buy us. <laughs> That's boo-foo. <laughs> buy us. Fuck you. Oh, yeah. Boo-foo. <laughs> Our boy Wheeler, right? Yeah, tell me about Wheeler. He got injured by a drunk farmer. I think there's a fart, like an accident with horse and carriage or something. Anyway. It's like the butterfly effect bullshit. Yeah. He wasn't necessarily like the alcohol he was mad at, but he took it out on the alcohol anyway. The alcohol was the vector to address a deeper problem of impurity within America. An impurity that was responsible for all the imperfections within society. Yeah. And the thing is, it wasn't like impurities. It was just change. Like society was changing. Right. Prohibition itself was about social organization and social control. Who was part of America, who should be, and why they shouldn't be. It's all about, you know, social patterns around alcohol and community and social processes. Mostly it was about class conflicts for social power acted out through symbolic and actual struggles that would impact the future structure of American society itself. Yeah, and like I hinted at when you're defending your boy Wilson, these laws only apply to the poor. 
the fact that these were driven by fines first reinforced the fact that rich people would just pay the fine. It was just the fee of doing the thing they wanted to. And the only people that would go to prison were those that couldn't afford the fine. Right. And further, rural whites were less impacted by it, and it's easy to make hooch in small towns compared to urban spaces. Further, the saloons that were a major point of conversation were disproportionately in cities and disproportionately served minorities and immigrants. Yeah, what could go wrong? Right on. So, <laughs> How could this be racially driven? <laughs> so the earliest data I could find was from Gallup in 1936, asking folks if they would support prohibition again, and 67% said no. So this brings up two important points around this subject that allow this travesty to happen, and it's basically around class and an urban and rural divide. Yeah, and I think we're basically kind of like circling that funnel today. And it's around the medical industry primarily. It's really easy to oversimplify the issues around like modern healthcare and point to the absolute disgusting damage that like for-profit healthcare and like specifically the pharmaceutical industry has caused and it's like never-ending need for more profit. The response to this is like this odd coalition that we see forming around like quote-unquote naturalism uh, as like this weird all-encompassing space for like wide swaths of people like some with like very legitimate concerns and criticisms of the medical establishment others that are focused on like really like gross survival of the fittest like racist and classist and even like really ableist tropes that underscore some of the movement and a third whose only concern is really leveraging this unique coalition to drive specific goals enter mr wheeler now, having these odd bedfellows can easily upend democratic institutions, especially when those democratic institutions are very justifiably being challenged for their shortfalls. Things like, say, a two-party system and voting access, you know, to point to some pretty clear examples. And I think it allows for some bad people to do very terrible things in the name of, like, very legitimate good things. Like, there's a lot of things to criticize and be trying to fix, but actually be pushing for terrible things. Yeah, I'm thinking about the QAnon's pizza party. Yeah, save the children. Go get Hillary in that basement. So the really important thing here is that we have to recognize how this movement made these partnerships grow through a mix of valid criticisms of alcoholism and things like dependency and economic infrastructure that allowed for corporate manipulation to proliferate. And how people identified these very valid concerns to drive a message that limited individual rights and gave the state basically unprecedented power. Partnering with people who may overlap can lead to like this really dangerous overreach, even when the cause seems like really innocuous and even sometimes wholesome. Right. So I think that's a good place to stop. I don't, I do, but I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of talking about gangsters and the mob and organized crime and tommy guns as fun as all that stuff is but this being the poor pearls almanac i want to point out a few things that i thought were interesting when we look at things happening like right now that sort of parallel the run up to prohibition like a new centralized currency was introduced around the start of the push for prohibition some new tax laws came into play as well, and now with the introduction of decentralized cryptocurrencies, I'm curious to see what will happen with tax law and more government overreach. I really don't know much about cryptos, and I wasn't really going to get into that either, but I do know it scares the shit out of the government, so I think it's kind of cool, I guess. 
Yeah, it's kind of coincidental. We're recording this, supposedly this week, Biden is supposed to announce some really important federal regulations around cryptocurrency. So I'll be interested to see what the response is in the next, like when this comes out, that decision will have been made and the responses will have been made about it. So like we can't talk about it. So I apologize if we sound like bumbling idiots on the subject because it happened after we recorded. So yeah. We are not stupid. We're just way ahead of the curve or something. We're topical as fuck, boy. Yeah, we're not topical. The whole currency conversation is really complicated. And despite what a lot of people think, no economist has ever really proposed a solution to the challenges of currency production. Because at the end of the day, someone has the ability to produce currency. And currency needs to be created to keep up with population inflation. And there's a weird balance that goes on between how much currency exists and how many people exist and how much productivity is going on. It's complicated and that's okay. But like bring up what you said about crypto, you know, there are some interesting benefits and tackle a lot of the challenges that we're talking about. But in my own Luddite-ish opinion, I think they're wildly centered on like an unsustainable industry. Mm, Very true. The next thing that I sort of thought was interesting. And I'm going to use that word a whole bunch, I guess, now. You steal my words now, Ali? Yeah, it's interesting. You stole my kneecaps, now you steal my words. It's an interesting word, interesting. I think it's interesting. Um, you stole my Shaq references, too. Just saying. You you take the lead on this episode, and suddenly you're just stealing all my stuff. Is Are we going to have, like, a face swap? Are you going to be white? Is this, is this what you've been doing this whole time? That's the real reparations is you're going to steal my whiteness? Yeah, this is the sequel to Get Out. It's Get In, but it's it's black people trying to get into being being a white. I'm gonna, I'm just going to take over your farm. Ashley's going to be the only one that knows it's not you. <laughs> She'll be fine with it. She'll be like, yeah, I didn't like him that much anyway. Your kids love me. <laughs> Leo, Leo would be fine with it. Yeah, he would... He'd be super pumped. He loves black people. I don't know why. Like, he just gets super excited. He's he's always smiling around me. He's super happy. He's a weird kid. He's so great. So, yeah. The next interesting thing that I was going to point out, there's a phenomenon of, like, moral superiority bleeding into politics. And I understand that some people are just simply passionate about what rules are made about where they live and the rules that they have to follow when everybody else does. Others, I feel, get on and ride their high horse into a political discourse and not only feel that their way is the high road, but if you disagree with them, you must be some sort of horrible, despicable, disgusting person. Like you. Yeah, exactly. Um, my way or the... The smash way. I don't, I, I'm trying to be less destructive, man. Now that, I sh- now that I shoot guns, I'm trying to be less destructive. I gotta, I gotta choose my destruction wisely. <laughs> It's something that I just want to bring up, and I want to warn people and myself from falling into this mindset. People argue on social media with opinions like it's facts, and then eventually, inevitably, turn into personal insults because of a minor disagreement on policy. Like Andy said, powers that be will use these seemingly minor issues to drive a wedge that will divide voters and basically decide those slim margins of victory. I can't stand to see it happen, but it happens time and time again. And that's why I thought this this point was interesting because it, it, it seems like it sort of started with prohibition and like we've just never really gotten out of it, like a negative feedback loop. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. And we've been doing it time and time again. It's been a really effective tool for things like abortion control and firearms and in this case, prohibition. 
It teaches us. We have a lot in common with people that we think are fundamentally different in terms of their values. You know, for example, like 60% of Americans support universal health care in the U.S. And this is an easy area to push as a wedge issue across political parties, especially in swing states, if we wanted to. I think Bernie really was the one that showed that this existed in a lot of ways because people had forgotten. We need to have the gumption, I guess, to be willing to work with people with different other opinions in order for an overarching good that benefits the whole. I agree with that, but I also think prohibition teaches us to stay passionate about keeping your eye on like a singular task that you're trying to get done and not try to make like a blanket or an umbrella value system that encompasses everything because that's where you'll start to lose. You got to keep it's it purity, like a purity test. Right. Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. But yeah, we should probably wrap this up because we are going way too long. This is what happens when you leave me with a bottle of whiskey in the basement. This is my first episode. I don't know how to... I, I was trying to be succinct. Succinct like a sink. You you used the word gumption in my episode. How did you work that in there? Because, like, you know... when you, How do you not think of Bernie Sanders and not think of the word gumption? Like, he looks like the kind of guy that uses gumption daily. I guess so, because he's like me. He's efficient, which is like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but with one word. Gumption. <laughs> It's just like one of those words. It's like John Wayne Gumby. It is what it sounds like, I guess. Yeah, it reminds me of Surf Ninjas. If you haven't seen that movie, there's a guy. He's my uh, Gumby in law. He he's quoting Rob Schneider right now, so we're just gonna end the episode right here. Moto Surf. I do want to watch that movie now, though. Yeah, we're gonna have a movie night one of these days. We're gonna watch Surf Ninjas. Um, what the? F- what were the other two we were talking about? You're one Machine Girl or something? Tank, Tank Girl. girl. Tank Girl, man. What was the other one we were talking about with Tank Girl? Tank Girl? Was there a different movie? Oh, Black movie? Sheep. Black Sheep. That was it. Was it Black Sheep? Yeah, I remember. It wasn't Chris Farley Black Sheep. It was with an actual sheep. It's like, in, I think it's in New Zealand or from Australia, one of those places. But yeah, we're going to have to have a movie marathon where we watch all three of them because they're all beautiful, well, except for maybe Tank Girl because I haven't seen it. Tank Girl is great. It's got, bro, I'm telling you, it's got iced tea as a kangaroo. Oh, it's, it's so good. I can't, I can't make this shit up, bro. <laughs> he's a mute, he's a mutant kangaroo. Money can't buy knives. All right. We are, we're done. I am out of control. Are we still recording? Oh, Jesus. We're still I'm, recording. I'm so I'm sorry. I'm assuming right now, if people are listening, it's like the background music is just like looping for like five minutes now, like trying to get us to get off the microphone. I, I had no but idea this was still going. I never clicked stop. I never clicked stop. This is the poor poor zombie. We're done now. Goodbye.